Thank you for downloading this episode of Software Gone Wild, a podcast focused on everything software defined. To get more episodes and explore other SDN and network automation resources, visit sdn.ipspace.net. Welcome to Software Gone Wild, the Linux edition. Last time we were speaking about Linux networking in general, and somewhere at the end we figured out that Linux interfaces aren't exactly the same thing as what we're used to have on physical boxes, where an interface is typically hole in the box where you plug a cable in. So we said, well, we have to fix that and talk a little bit more about the Linux interfaces. And so back with us today are, again, uh, Rupa Prabhu and David Ahern from Culus Networks. Welcome. Hi, Ivan. Thanks for having us here again. Oh, it's always a great pleasure. Hi, Ivan. And to keep me honest and ask all the management questions that I always forget about is Chris Young. Hi, Chris. Hey, trying to get that mute button off. Oh, no, not a problem. Hey, wonderful to be back. I think my brain has recovered mostly from the last session, so I'm, I'm happy to stretch it again today. Okay, so let's bless the game. Nick wanted to join us, but he is very popular. He's triple booked. And David G lives in a country where they can't deal with cold, so his junction box is frozen or something. So he's on mobile phone. He can't join us. So where shall we start? Interfaces in general, as I said, we usually think that interfaces are those things where you plug cables in, and that's also true on Linux, right? Yes, correct. A network interface is a kernel object or kernel networking endpoint for a physical port, and it goes beyond that. But every physical port would have an associated interface, right? Correct. Now, the first thing I always get confused when I play with various Linux distros is that every distro loves to name the interfaces, the physical interfaces, differently. So what's the story there? How do they figure out how a port should be named? So I guess, could we back up just a, a little bit and clarify a bit on some of the terminology? Oh, sure. Because it really does kind of move up the stack a bit. So Linux does have, you know, like the physical network cards or for offloaded switches and ASICs front panel ports which is what you're referring to about plugging cables into. So that would be the physical interface. And then those are hardware resources which are identified by the operating system. And the operating system drivers will create an internal into the kernel representation of that physical port, which is called a net device or a network interface. And then you move up the stack even more and you get into Linux APIs, which are also called interfaces, You know how you interface with the kernel. But those are different interfaces, right? Yeah, so it's kind of like that one term getting really overloaded. And so now the question you just asked was the naming of the network devices in the kernel that you see in the kernel side, which is, again, a virtual representation of a front panel port. Exactly. So how do we get those names? So traditionally, they were Ethernet interfaces. And so they started off with ETH as the beginning, the prefix, and the enumerated starting with zero. Mm -hmm. And then my understanding is they someone decided they wanted repeatable, identifiable names, so they started doing it based on uh, PCI locations. Yeah. And so and that's when you started getting those, those really funky names like ENSP4. There is something called UDEV, which user space can use to detect, to map a PCI ID to an interface name. So that rename can happen at during boot, when the system is booting. Okay, so UDEV is the thingy that names the interface with this weird name. It can facilitate a change in name provided by the driver. For example, the NIC ports, like David was mentioning, NIC ports usually started traditionally with the ETH0, ETH1, and so on. To give you an example, our boxes, a user space, application actually can come and rename, tell the kernel, tell our driver to create a port with this name. That's how it works on our systems. But then if we could also use UDEV to actually rename the ports however we want. I have a question there because you just said the words create a port. But when you're creating a port, is that creating a logical port that's associated with a physical entity, meaning this RJ45 
thing yeah. that's connected possibly to apply to an ASIC or are, are we talking about creating like a switched uh, NSVI, switched virtual interface, VLAN yeah. interface in traditional terms? Yeah, you caught me there. So here's the thing. For example, NIC ports, there is always a physical entity for that port and a PCI ID for every port. So when the driver loads, it the probe function of the driver actually identifies a port and creates a corresponding netdev for it. When I said our box, what we are doing on our box is we are mapping. Let me back up for a second. The system provides one PCI ID for the CPU port. And what we do is we create these logical switch ports and kind of map those to the ASIC CPU port, PCI port. So essentially, we are boxing the CPU port traffic to all these. We create the illusion of a front panel physical port. It's still a logical in the sense for us in this case. So there is one PCI adapter for the ASIC. Mm -hmm. All the traffic that the ASIC is punting to the CPU is really coming through that one PCI adapter with tags carrying metadata or whatever, indicating from which physical port this came. Yes, exactly. And then on the other hand, in the Linux kernel, you have your driver, which is demuxing this traffic and sending it so that it appears like it's coming from different front panel interfaces. Yes, yes. This is how it is for our systems, where you're trying to map one CPU port to multiple front panel ports. But traditionally on a NIC, like David was saying, the number of ports, they have number of PCIDs and the probe function, the PCI probe function is called for every whenever the system sees every port. And then the driver gets to choose to create a NetDev object for that particular port, and it can give it a name. And then user space can come and obviously change the name if required. Just to add a little twist to this whole story, the devices are really somewhere in the dev part of the file system, right? Uh, kernel exposes PCI devices, which is called with the dev, which are called devices. And then there are NetDevs which is a networking object associated with every device, you could say. And then there are physical net devs, and then there are logical net devs for bridges and bonds and other functions, networking functions. But I see at least some of them as files under slash dev slash something, right? The networking devices usually appear in sysclass net, sysfs. Ah, okay. So it's a little bit different than what I've been used to in the old yeah, exactly. Unix days. And then this is class net. There is a pointer to the PCI. There is a file system link to the PCI device if you want to go looking for the PCI device it belongs to, if there is one. I, I just did want to interject one point about how SwitchDev is kind of blending these two models together. So the Mellanox switch, for example, with the built-in native to the kernel driver, it's little more server-like in the sense that the ASIC driver does all the hardware programming and it also enumerates the net devices in the kernel and it does associate them with that front panel port. So when it comes up, it enumerates all those devices in a traditional server sense of ETH1, ETH2, ETH3, but then you can use UDEV rules to look at an attribute that the driver exports that says this Ethernet net dev actually associates with front panel port name whatever, okay? So this way you can rename it what the driver's enumerating based on PCI locations. You can rename that programmatically to correspond to front panel ports using the UDEV rules. So this is kind of blending this switch ASIC world with the server world. Yeah. And just to be clear, I'm still trying to get this model in my head. When you say you could rename it, this isn't something typically that an end user would do. This would be somebody like Cumulus would provide a more common user-friendly name for that mm -hmm. interface. Usually a sysadmin. These distributions come with some defaults and they provide you, there's lots of documentation on Red Hat as well, how to go and tweak these files or drop in new files to do however you want to do. And by users, this is typically a sysadmin who is preparing his golden image or whatever to deploy. Okay. So let's try to wrap my head around this. The device drivers can create all sorts of thingies that look like interfaces. And uh, really the next question will be, what is then the common thing for all the various interfaces? 
And then these things are mapped through UDAV or whatever other rules to the names. Those names are created as files somewhere in the file system, or at least they look like files, so that people like me can go and look at what interfaces we have on our box. Is this at least 50% correct? Yes, it is correct. But in addition to just the file interface, the SysFS, where you can view all the network interfaces, there is also the Netlink protocol, a Netlink API, which you can query the kernel to give uh, to look at all the interfaces. For example, IP link show. The IP route to package is a command which talks Netlink to the kernel and it returns you a dump of all the network interfaces on your system. Similarly, address dump, all the addresses that are assigned to network devices on the system. Okay, next question. We already figured out that the physical ports have interfaces associated with them, usually on a server. Your channel between the ASIC and the CPU is demuxed into many different interfaces. What other things do appear as interfaces in Linux, as network interfaces, I should say? So once about the physical interfaces, you can create port channels or bonds. And then bonds can be enslaved into bridge. So bridge is also a network device, network object, where you can assign an IP address on top or so on. And in general, in Linux, you can stack interfaces. They are like Lego blocks. Uh, whatever function you like, you can combine them. For example, bonds can be made slaves of bridges. And then you can create VLAN devices on top of the bridge if you want for routing on a VLAN. And similarly for VXLAN, you can create a VXLAN uh, interface. A VXLAN is, uh, takes you to another class of net devices, which is, which are tunnel endpoints. VXLAN and GRE and MPLS or so on. And then there is WERPS. You can enslave devices to WERPS. All of these drivers that handle these functions handle them by creating this object called a net device, which you can associate with the physical port. And yeah stack them to for building uh, networking functions. Generically, what I would say is a net device is for the networking subsystem what a file descriptor or a socket descriptor is to Unix IO in general. So it's a way of having a simplified API to talk to the kernel to do configuration or administration on something. So for example, when it comes to creating an L2 domain, you would create a bridge device a net device in the kernel, and then you enslave things to it. Or to create an L3 domain, you create a VRF device and enslave things to it. And then the stacking you're talking about is like having Mac VLANs or VLAN devices on top of that. So the device is a way of having something, an object to have packets flow through it, an object that can take an IP address, an object that can be set up and down, you know, administratively controlled and accumulate stats. Stats are also stored in a net device. And another example to give is the VLAN. For example, if you want to NCAP, DCAP VLAN on a physical port, you would go and create a net device on top of the physical port, say E0.100 for NCAPing and decapping VLAN 100. And maybe one, one quick thing that we should get to before we move on faster than we did in the last podcast. We say the words API. We're not talking about a RESTful API. Correct. Just so that everybody's clear on this and all the listeners, this isn't something that as a network sysadmin, you would be writing directly to. If you're writing networking apps on Linux, for example, protocols like STP, LLDP, all these use Netlink API. It's like a syscall to the kernel to get network interfaces to check stats and so on. So writing apps on Linux protocols or any configuration provisioning uh, apps, you will today use Netlink. So the REST APIs are an external box talking to the Linux networking node. And then the APIs we're talking about are with inside that node where you're doing something in user space, talking to the kernel. So those are the APIs that we're referring to. Perfect. Okay, you already mentioned the VLAN interface and you mentioned the simplest case where you would have a physical port and then you would want to work with one VLAN on that physical port. And so you would create an interface ETH 0.100, and this would be VLAN 100 on top of that physical port. Yes. 
So I'm guessing you can do you can create many interfaces for many VLANs on top of the same physical port, right? That is correct. And it looks from the outside like the physical port and the VLAN would be sort of specified in the interface name. Is that correct? Or could I just name an interface that maps to port 100 on ETH0 blah? Yeah, you can rename devices anyhow you want. They usually expand it to a VLAN interface. They internally create a VLAN interface. But then if you want to rename it, say, blah, but tell it that, okay, give it this VLAN ID, the kernel provides the API and uh, you can create any interface name you want. Those names where it's like ETH0.100 are kind of de facto standard naming schemes that have evolved to keep your sanity. Because if you named the VLAN 100 device on ETH0 FUBAR, when you did a a listing of all your network interfaces in a system and you saw FUBAR, you would have no idea what that meant. So by saying ETH0.100, you're like, oh, okay, that's port, that's going to be VLAN 100 on port ETH0. So it's a good mental reminder. So yes, you can name them whatever, but you will drive yourself crazy if you do. And just to clarify, you could have a dot one hundred and give it a dot one Q VLAN ID configuration of dot ten or of ten, for instance. So you could completely yes. mess yourself up. Don't yes. ever, 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 ever do that. Yes. But you could. And to David's point, if you're using commands on Linux, you'll have to ask for the detailed output, IP minus D detail link output to see what exactly this interface maps to and so on. And what VLAN ID this maps to. And this thing would be like a sub-interface on a physical port of a Cisco router. So it is one VLAN on one port, right? Yes, correct. If we want to go into details about this, there are many other details. Like, for example, on when people coming from Cisco world, a VLAN device, it's usually an L3 device when you create a VLAN, right? So on Linux, it's usually L3 if it is not enslaved to a bridge, for example. And things, there are many ways to deploy VLANs in under a bridge in an L2 environment or other than, you know, the L3. Going up from a single physical port, you said that you can enslave a number of physical ports to a bridge. Mm-hmm. And a bridge is VLAN-capable layer 2 forwarding device, right? Mm-hmm. Now, can I enslave just one VLAN from one port and one VLAN from another port to one bridge and different VLANs to a different bridge? Yes, you can do that on Linux. Not sure that I should, but okay, that's a different story. If I can extend that, could I have two interfaces with the same .1Q value on it assigned to two different bridges? Yes, you can. Linux allows that. And would they talk to each other? No, they wouldn't talk to each other. I'm sure we could make them. I'm sure there's yeah. a way that we could, but sure. by default, if we have two different bridges. Sure. Oh, yeah, of course. You just create a VTH pair between the two. Yeah. So this would kind of be... Are we back into namespaces at this point or not? No, we're no. not. Is this like a layer two VRF? I'm trying to find a model that helps me connect a, this. A bridge domain. Exactly. It's bridge domain in Cisco iOS. Yeah. Okay. And to your previous point about uh, creating VLAN devices on physical ports, you can create VLAN devices on anything, not just physical port. As long as you want the traffic coming through that, you know, received or tagged or untagged and pass up the stack. So as the VRF guy, I will add that (laughs) you asked about a VLAN on, you know, let's say ETH0 has two VLANs, 100 and 101, and can they go into different bridges? You can also do that into different VRFs. So ETH0 100, VLAN 100 can be put into, say, VRF Red, and the VLAN 101 can be put into VRF Blue. So just extending that to the L3 enslavement as well. Yep. So right now we have the sub-interfaces on the physical ports, and we have the bridge groups or bridge domains. Mm-hmm. And then there is the VLAN interface on, let's say, Cisco routers or switches from any vendor which is really sitting on top of a bridge group. Mm -hmm. SVIs. Exactly. So can I do that same thing in Linux? Yes, you can. I will back up and give a little bit of history about the bridge and VLAN filtering in Linux. 
if traditionally you would create this VLAN sub-interface on a physical port and enslave it to the bridge. At this point, when it's an, in an L2 domain, you only want the net device, the VLAN net device, to do NCAP and DCAP of the VLAN. When people started seeing that, if you want to scale it to, say, 4,000 4K VLANs, you have to create so many of these net devices, even though you don't want to assign an IP address only for NCAP and DCAP. That's when, a few years back, I would say four years back, Linux Bridge actually implemented the inbuilt VLAN filtering. It said that, okay, VLAN is just an ID in an L2 domain. You don't have to actually create a net dev for a VLAN when you're using just to NCAP and DCAP. And I, the Linux Bridge said, I can do the NCAP and DCAP. You give me the physical port, enslave the physical port, and you tell me as an integer what VLAN you want to set or unset. This goes back to other vendors like Cisco and everybody. Who, the bridge does the VLAN filtering on its own. You just give it IDs and you don't want to create this NetDev object. So that's a VLAN filtering bridge. So today in Linux, you can deploy all this VLAN filtering using the old traditional model where you create sub-interfaces and then the bridge, the new VLAN filtering bridge where you just assign IDs to physical ports under the bridge. Now, going to your next point about SVIs and how do you create SVIs on a bridge domain, you can create a VLAN sub-interface on the bridge NetDev. I guess a picture for all this, you could visualize it better. Maybe we'll provide links to this uh, podcast to make it more clearer, but you would create this. For example, if the bridge NetDev is called bridge, you would create bridge.100, and that would be your SVI interface for VLAN 100 and you can assign an IP address and do whatever you want on it. And so your comments there about the VLAN filtering bridge, that was work that I believe you did that really had significant impacts on scalability within the Linux. So it's one of those important changes that have been made to move the Linux networking stack to be scalable and more complete towards a network operating system as opposed to a desktop or server-based operating system. Slight correction there. I did not do the initial VLAN filtering changes, but uh, you're right that I extended it for okay. making it easier for VXLAN ports and so on. But since after it's initially went in four years back, we yeah we enhanced it in various ways. I'm kind of having a turtles all the way down moment. Mm -hmm. So I am. <laughs> is it still fair to say that when we're talking about all these interfaces that can be enslaved to each other, is there still a rule set? that follows similar to like OSI model that physical to L2, L2 to L3, there, there, there is still to some degree, the models that I know from a traditional networking standpoint still apply here that I can't have a L2 enslaved to an L3 interface or something. Do those rules, those still hold true? Yes, they do hold true. Okay. Like a port Good. channel, a bond, <laughs> you create all these on, on a physical ports and then you can use the port channel group to assign to a L2 domain. Okay, perfect. So I can't create a port channel over two VLAN interfaces. I think you can actually. You can. The Linux bonding driver will allow you. But traditionally, you, yeah, we use it always on the physical ports. I did not dare to try that. So that gets into where Linux provides building blocks, and yeah. you can assemble the blocks in a way that may not make sense. But in general, there are some guardrails which help you construct things in a right manner. So like every good programming environment, they give you all the rope you need to hang yourself. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And with Linux use, being used everywhere, I mean, low-end devices to high-end, we have all sorts of combinations that you can use things for. Okay, but just to recap, five years ago, if I wanted 100 VLANs on my switch, I had to create 100 bridges because the bridges were not VLAN aware. Correct. And today, if I just have one bridge domain, so if all the ports on my switch are in the same bridge domain, if I don't want to separate them into different domains for whatever reason, I would just have one bridge interface and all the ports connect to that one. And then I would have VLAN interfaces on top of the bridge interface, and I would configure IP addresses on those bridge VLAN interfaces. Yes, exactly. And then, coming to David, I would enslave this bridge VLAN interfaces to my verbs. Yes. Yeah. Cool. And the bridged interfaces isn't like a hub where it's common broadcast, common 
domain. It's more, I'm thinking of the term bridge and thinking traditional L2 30 years ago, CCNA training bridge (laughs) and trying to to figure out. Yeah, exactly. That's it. Yeah, that's it. Okay. There'll be per VLAN broadcast domain. Yeah, it's the same thing. Just out of curiosity, who is running spanning tree on this stuff? The Linux bridge does have a spanning tree implementation. But then there are also user space implementations. One which we use is called MSTPD. And the Linux bridge has uh, APIs to actually shut the STP in the kernel and uh, allow a user space application to run the spanning tree protocol. What this spanning tree daemon does is it runs the protocol and it'll use the kernel netlink interface to tell the bridge driver, okay, shut down this port or put this port in the state and so on. I am not an STP expert, but uh, yeah, I do know the various attributes that the kernel provides for a STP implementation to use. So the kernel already includes poor man's STP. Yes. But you can totally shut it off and replace it with your own that does all the magic stuff like multiple spanning tree domains and all the beautiful stuff that we should never talk about. Wrap yes. spanning tree. Yes. Yes. Okay, now for the fun part. Tunnels. You already mentioned them. Mm -hmm. So what are tunnel interfaces? They are totally virtual, right? Everything we discussed so far had some vague connection to the physical world. Correct. And the tunnel interfaces are just sitting on top of whatever transport. Correct. Tunnel interface is a logical interface. You have routes and FTB entries, bridge FTB entries, all those pointing to this tunnel interface. And the usual logic that sends a packet out of physical ports will be redirected to the tunnel port and the tunnel driver actually does the NCAP, TCAP before sending it out. Okay, so what types of tunnel interfaces would you see on a Linux host? You'll see GRE, IPGRE, then the new ones, there are so many right now. We are mostly familiar with GRE, VXLAN, NPLS. David, can I, you think of any others? IPIP. So IPv4 yeah. encapsulation. Uh, IPv4 and IPv6. Exactly. Yep. Probably yep. NVGRE, Geneva. Yes, yes, NVGRE, Geneva. Linux supports all of them. Yeah, 27 versions of IPv something over IPv something else. Yeah, exactly. and the full, I don't know how you pronounce it, full, goo, and the other IP. And IP encapsulations as well. So one comment though about some of those encapsulations do not actually have net device representations. Some of the encapsulations, like in PLS, are done through lightweight tunneling, where it's a, a route specification to do the encap as opposed to a tunnel interface that's used to route the packet through to add the the encapsulation. Yeah, and this came through just because of the scale issues. So when we were implementing MPLS. MPLS tunnels, the routing team here, they said, oh, a net device for every MPLS endpoint, you will have to scale to 10,000 of them, you guys. I mean, people did not believe that net devices, so many net devices would make any sense. And that's when we introduced lightweight tunnels, which you can assign the NCAP information to the route. And subsequently, recently, that David earlier brought up, I submitted the patches to do something similar with the in the bridge path, L2 path for VXLAN. Okay, I'll try to keep that in mind. Before going there, one other thing I wanted to ask you. Some of the things you mentioned, like VXLAN, are layer two over tunnel transport. Mm -hmm. And other things like IP over IP are clearly layer three over tunnel. Mm -hmm. And MPLS is somewhere in the middle. Do this tunnel interfaces look like layer two or layer three interfaces to the outside world. So for example, can I connect an IP over IP interface to a Linux bridge? Yes, you could. So you could deploy them as an L2 interface by just connecting, putting them under the bridge. That's how we do our VXLAN, VXLAN L2 bridging. And you could create an independent VXLAN L3 interface as well. That is, you don't put it under a bridge. Yeah, but for VXLAN, it's easy because it is layer two transport. If I would connect IP over IP interface to a Linux bridge, would the interface throw away the Ethernet header and just send IP over IP or would it just say, I can't do it? I think it will. I've never tried it. Yeah, I've never tried that either. 
like I say, the, the kernel allows you to do a lot of things, and there's so many permutations. I certainly have not tried IP and IP connected to a bridge. Yeah, me neither. So you would typically use IP over IP as a layer three interface with an IP address and then use routing to push traffic into it. Yes, because that tunnel endpoint has the local address and the remote address. And if you plug that into a bridge, the bridge negates those. So most likely would not work. But again, that would be one of those weird things that someone could try and who knows what would happen. In a way, it could work as well because it is a net dev. If you put it in the bridge, what the bridge driver usually does in these cases is it just passes the packet to the tunnel driver. And the tunnel driver, it has additional attributes like remote address and so on for that tunnel device. So it could slap the end cap in and end cap on the packet and send the packet. Like David said, yeah, it potentially could. Yeah, you could try it. I would say that's a, that so, would be a weird one to be sticking under. The same goes for VTIs with IPsec. To, to stick those yeah. under a bridge, those are clearly L3 entities. Yeah. But semantically, you know, I don't think the bridge driver is going to reject it. Yeah, the bridge driver won't reject it. Yes, correct. So one of the question for tunnel endpoints, if I understood you properly, you're saying most of them now have gone to software only. Having lots of experience with lots of vendors' gears, you'll end up with things like if you turn on GRE, you actually lose one of your physical interfaces because you need to draw support from the ASIC because as traditional vendors, they've tended to put these really anemic CPUs. So how does that performance hit happen? And could I leverage things like DBDK or ASIC resources if I need more performance? And how does how does that blend happen? Does, that, does the question make sense? Yeah, the question makes sense. For us, for example, if you take VXLAN or GRE, right, we hardware accelerated. So... I would say we have not done any performance measurements, but I'm sure on the software side, when you're running pure GRE or pure, pure VXLAN, there are options that you can enable in the kernel to for performance. I have not heard any problems with VXLAN too. So with VXLAN, obviously, people usually try to do it on the TOR, right, for the hardware acceleration. I can't think of any numbers to be sure for the software implementation. And I guess the other question there would be, can you also then hardware accelerate and also use that for recirculation of, if you want to do um, L3 VTAP functionality? Yes. Okay. Yeah, the way I understood the discussion we had the last time, you are sort of looking at what the user is configuring by listening to Netlink messages, and then you try to map that into hardware as much as you can, right? That's our implementation, yes. So if there is something you can do in hardware and you thought about that and you wrote the code that can map this weird software construct into hardware, then it is hardware accelerated. If someone is doing something totally stupid, like I'm suggesting for the last 30 minutes, (laughs) then of course you can't hardware accelerate it because you've never seen it before. Mm -hmm. Okay, fair. Now to that great idea about MPLS tunnels not being tunnels. Did I understand correctly that the original implementation of MPLS on Linux wanted to have a separate tunnel for every different MPLS label stack? Yeah, so when you say original, MPLS in the kernel just came in recently, a few years back, and uh, the initial support did not have MPLS tunnels. And I did work on adding MPLS tunnels, and that's when I'm making it. So usually when you're adding tunnel support, new tunnel support in the Linux kernel, you look at all the other tunnels and you go ahead and add another tunnel driver, which uh, enumerates it, it as a net dev. And then when I was adding MPLS IP tunnels, it was clear that it's not good to scale. And even the VXLAN guys were going through the same thing. VXLAN with one net dev per VTEP or per endpoint was not scaling to hundreds of endpoints. So I added the lightweight tunnels. I was working on this lightweight tunnels where you can add end cap directly to the route instead So taking a step back, what you would do uh, usually is you have the route pointing to the tunnel device. If you don't have a tunnel device, you can now add with LWT an NCAP information to the route and point it to the physical interface or a bond or so on. So I would add to that is, so the original implementation that was put in 
in uh, what was it, the winter of 2015, was label switch routing. So it was the initial implementation for MPLS, which is a packet comes in of MPLS type, it can sw switch out labels and send it on. And then what Rupa is referring to is the edge router where it's you're LDR. adding it initially into the MPLS stream. Yeah, LER. So when you have to push the label stack in front of the original user packet, right? Yes. Yes. When you already have a labeled packet, it's a totally different switching path. Right. Yeah. That yeah. ingress yeah. piece that you didn't want to have to have a separate net device, a virtual representation of the tunnel explicitly defined, that was the scalability issue that was being addressed with this LW tunnel encapsulation. Yeah. Subsequently, we uh, even the VXLand endpoints now use the LWT mechanism instead of creating one VXLAN tunnel device for every endpoint. Am I right in assuming that you did something like what uh, Cisco had forever in their FIB, where you would have the whole encapsulation stack attached to the next hop, and then you would just take that whole thingy and append it in front of the IP packet and send it over instead of going through tunnels and so on? Yes. The intention of tunnels, you know, originally is just, it's a way to get a hold of the packet to make a change to it. And the, the idea behind the LWT is, well, we don't actually need to set up a device and have it have the packet, you know, virtually transmitted to this device to make changes to it. The route stack itself could say, send it to this encapsulation handler, and it's going to add some data to the packet. Ah, so you're still doing it uh, on the fly. It's not like iOS, for example, I know that in the good old days, if I would look at the FIP, I would see the whole thing that would be prepended to the packet as a fixed string. Okay, so now in this case, if you did a route listing for MPLS uh, tunnel ingress encapsulations, you would see the stack of labels. It would tell you this prefix has this stack of labels and it's going to this next hop address. And then for the next hop, you would have to do a different lookup into the ARP cache. Yes, it could be either an IPv4 next hop or an IPv6 next hop. And then it would resolve, make sure that neighbor was resolved and then hand it off. So you are effectively adding the encapsulation data to the forwarding entry in one of the routing or MAC forwarding tables. Yes. Nice. It's a little different for the MAC forwarding case. It's what we do is, the new implementation of the bridge driver, it can map a VLAN to a tunnel. So, the v, uh, for example, for VXLAN, VLAN to VNI. So it's not per FDB, but it's per VLAN you can provide end cap information. It, it was a very clever scheme to avoid the overhead of net device, you know, independent net device representations. The one thing I wanted to ask before when we started going down this uh, VXLAN path, in the good old days, I would have point-to-point -point tunnels between uh, VXLAN endpoints, right? Mm -hmm. Either I would stupidly send everything to everyone, or I would need at least a different set of tunnels for every different ingress replication group, right? Mm -hmm. Or was it as bad as having one set of tunnels for every VNI? So I'm not sure I'm answering your question right, but today the ingress replication in Linux, you would create a VXLAN device. You would add FDB entries. There is a different way how you could create an ingress replication group with multiple destinations, multiple tunnel IPs. Yes, when that particular default FDB entry is hit on that VXLAN device, the VXLAN driver will just replicate the packet to that many VTIPs. Oh, now I figured it out. So in the good old days, the VNI, the bit that gets into the VXLAN header, was hidden somewhere in the tunnel driver, right? Mm -hmm. Which meant that for every different value of VNI, you needed a set of point-to-point -point tunnels going to the other VTAPs. Mm -hmm. Oh, crazy. If I'm right, and what I understood you're doing today is you effectively created a multi-point VXLAN tunnel, right? Yes, correct. So all the information about a particular VNI is in one tunnel interface. Yes. 
And like I said earlier, VXLAN has also moved to this LWT scheme in which you can have a like the bridge interface, right? The, when the bridge became VLAN filtering bridge, you could you had to create only one bridge. So similarly on Linux today, you can create one VXLAN tunnel interface called VXLAN zero, and then you could populate its FTB entry per VNI. You can have routes pointing to this one single VXLAN zero interface. So the same way that bridge interface was made VLAN aware, now you made the VXLAN interface VLAN aware. Correct, exactly. And the mapping between VLANs and VNIs is specified somewhere on the management side of the VXLAN driver through, I guess, some Netlink calls. So what we did was you can specify that under the bridge driver when you're configuring, when you're enslaving the VXLAN port to the bridge. The reason I moved it up to the bridge driver is because it's, for example, you would want this for other end caps as well, not just VXLAN. So the abstraction or the API is very abstract. You can map a VLAN to a tunnel end cap information. And this end cap information will be one single net depth like VXLAN zero. Tomorrow it could be MPLS. We have not given a lot of thought on the MPLS thing, but that's the whole idea. So from the end user standpoint, I would enslave a generic VXLAN tunnel interface to one or more of my bridges. And then I would tell the bridge that this VLAN is actually mapped to this other thingy that you know nothing about, but please pass this thingy on to the underlying tunnel driver. Exactly. That's a nice way to put it. Cool. So me as a user, I have just one management interface and I always deal with the bridge driver and all the magic happens behind the scenes. Yes. There is something called DEST metadata, which is basically a internal kernel object, which is passed from the bridge driver per packet. It just attaches to the packet. The VXLAN drivers knows what it is getting and just gathers the end cap info from there. So the yeah, the API and the abstraction is allows for other tunnel types and so on. And then on the remote end of Netlink, you are listening to what the bridge driver is doing, and then you are copying that into the forwarding tables in ASIC so that the same thing also happens in ASIC, right? Yes, correct. Okay, I guess we've managed to confuse everyone who's listening to this. <laughs> Some people who are involved in this. Chris, any final questions? <laughs> no, this is amazing and my mind is spinning. This is how I felt after the end of the last podcast. So this is great. <laughs> so we managed to replicate that feeling. So nice to hear that. David, Rupa, any last comments? Have we missed anything on the interfaces part of the picture? Just that clarification that to me, network interfaces throughout this discussion is referring to network devices, what kernel developers call net devs. So keep that in mind when you say interfaces throughout this entire podcast, it means net devices. Yes. So for stupid networking engineers, we were talking about interfaces for people who know what they are doing. We apologize. They're really net devs. Yes, they're net devs. And to for application programmers, I guess, from if you're using the Netlink API, you use the similar ways, exactly similar API to configure a bridge or any other types of links. And then kernel also gives you this extra blob of attributes attached to every type of interface. Yeah, there are a bunch of Netlink libraries out there which handle the basic link abstraction and then attached extra information for every link. And I wouldn't say, well, I forget the exact word you use there about non-kernel developers. Everyone still calls them Linux interfaces, network interfaces. So it is, and this is where it gets really confusing when you start talking about Linux networking, because that word interface can have so many different meanings. So yeah, I just mean throughout the context of this podcast, network interfaces equals a net device. So you hear those words kind of interchangeably. And now the final question from my end. Assuming I'm not a programmer, I don't want to deal with Netlink calls. How do I configure all this stuff? IP route two. That's it. Thank you. That's the package. Yeah. And it contains the IP command, the TC command, the bridge command, all kinds of commands. 
Yeah, so one thing to note is whenever you're configuring net, uh, network interfaces on Linux, there is whole this ordering thing, right? The way you stack, the you have to create, prep the physical port first, then put it in a bond, then put the bond in a bridge and all that. So there are a lot of things in play and there are a bunch of network interface managers. What we did was uh, we wrote another version of IFF down, which Debian uses or used to be the default for a long time. We extended that, we started with that format, but then we soon realized that to cover all these various use cases for the data center to, for example, BERF was a recent one, creating BERF devices and table mappings and all this, we rewrote this network interface manager called IFM down to do this in a certain way, predictable way. So using a network interface manager will help. Yeah, so for all the new users, someone new to Linux, leaving the legacy world, entering the new the new Linux world, interface manager is your friend. It will hide all these gory details about the order needed for creating devices, putting the addresses on them, all that stuff. And IF up down too is amazing. It's actually my go-to tool now for Ubuntu and, and Debian distributions. And yeah, and then but IF up down too requires you to edit an interfaces file. So people moving from other non-Linux backgrounds to Linux networking, we also added this something called NCLU, Network Interface Command Line Utility, which does nothing, but it makes it simpler. It's a wrapper around ETC network interfaces. What it does is it makes the file edits for you and then hits commit, basically tells uh, IFAB down to do, okay, go load this file now. So there are various layering layers to make this thing easier. Yeah, so that someone taking that first step from an iOS to a Cumulus Linux, the NCLU is that great. You're still used to a certain syntax. It goes and creates the file for you. You can see that file. You can modify that file, whatever you want to do. And so that's the next level is that interface manager and making your own transition. Exactly. And then running the IP command, you're down at the bottom. You're interacting with that raw kernel API directly. But the right way to do things, right, is to edit that configuration file because then everything becomes intent-based. Yes. No, no, we, we just use Ansible and, and some DevOps pixie dust. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and one more thing I do want to mention is this IP monitor. David can add more, but Linux kernel provides this async notification API, which is great for troubleshooting. It's, again, uh, part of the IP route 2 tool suite. Basically, you can do IP monitor all Netlink events when a carrier goes up, carrier goes down, STP state changes, and so on. You can also do, like, for example, IP monitor neighbor events only, and so on. So that is a great tool to troubleshoot a box. If you See what's going on inside the kernel. All those little wheels that are turning, IP yeah. monitor helped you kind of do some introspection on those wheels. Okay, so let's wrap it right here. Thanks again for a wonderful hour-long chat. If people want to find you, David and Rupa, how can they get in touch with you? Are you on Twitter? Are your emails somewhere? How do someone send you a question if they want to? Yeah, my email is rupa at cumulusnetworks.com. I do have a Twitter handle, underscore, underscore Rupa. Email is the best way. And my email is dsa at cumulusnetworks.com. And my Twitter handle is D-S-A-H-E-R-N. Thank you. So what are we going to discuss the next time? So many topics, huh? Yeah. <laughs> Before we go there, I do want to say one thing. I want to say thank you so much for going into this with us. Because what I think a lot of people don't realize is Cumulus is not the only OS out there based on Linux. So when I'm in a any other vendor who happens to use a Linux kernel, whether or not they expose Bash, it's a different question. All of the stuff we're talking about is happening in some way, shape, or form under the covers. It's just been invisible to us. I don't know about Arista. That's definitely not true for Nexus. iOS, no. XR, no. No. Juniper, I don't believe they do anything in the kernel. I believe all those are user space stacks. Arista is mostly user space, but I don't know how much they put in the kernel. I haven't spent time on their systems. They are closer to using more of the Linux kernel. Nexus, for example, and iOS, it is strictly, Linux is just a boot mechanism. It recognizes the hardware and brings up user space. That's ah, okay. that is as far as its Linux stuff goes. 
Tmos <laughs> is the only company that's really focusing on making Linux a feature compatible, scalable network operating system. And you know the collaboration of all these functions, for example, the whole, uh, even for BXLAN going a single device, there was work that was happening in the host side where Linux was uh, used on hypervisors and what we were doing. And it was a great collaboration effort to get all this integrated into the kernel from the data center and from the hypervisor side and so on. Yeah, and thanks open up for- another can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's kind of a slow point for me because I really am, and I fully believe that the Linux model is going to be what settles out for network operating systems with the commoditization of hardware. There's no reason to have all these disparate networking operating systems and how they implement. Yep. That's not, like it's infrastructure. Your feature add is your L3 algorithms and how you decide to program routes. Exactly. The maintenance of those routes and the programming of the hardware, those are just mechanical operations now. And so to just let that kind of settle out and let the Linux operating system be what it's supposed to be, which is here's your hardware, here's your driver, bring up your user space. Now the user space tells the, the hardware what it needs to be doing. I was thinking about protocols also the other day, right? Why would you implement 10 different versions of LACP and re-implement the same thing? You have it once, you fix it, and you're done. LACP, LLDP, even STP for that matter. You do it in an open way, you have it in the kernel or an open source Linux ecosystem, and you just maintain one thing. Yeah, so all these NASAs that aren't using Linux, they're having to invent and own everything. SNMP, any kind of system monitoring, they're owning more than they need to own when yeah. that's what open source is for. Open source is for your infrastructure. Your value add is what you make your own unique proprietary thingy. Okay, let's wrap it up now. Thank you. It's been awesome. Chris, if someone wants to ask you a question, where can they find you? Uh, Netman Chris on Twitter is definitely the best place where I'm uh, lurking and trying to stay warm these days. Because the physical world is just too cold for you, right? <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's, uh, yes. Home alone. I know how that feels. It's snowing outside. <laughs> We're getting close to spring. Woohoo! Uh, forgetting the weather, you've been listening to Software Gone Wild, another great chat on Linux. The next time, we'll figure something out and bring you some more Linux goodness. And in the meantime, we plan to do some podcasts on routing protocols in the data centers. Stay tuned. Thank you for listening to this episode of Software Gone Wild. If you want to learn more about software-defined networking, network automation, and related topics, visit sdn.ipspace.net and explore our courses, books, webinars, and podcasts.